0: Thank you, Wendy. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever know the full impact that television has had on generation after generation. I have a picture of when I was a little boy, and the T-shirt says, Who Shot JR? Anyone know what that's about? All my old school friends know. Back when I grew up, television was good. You had Dallas and Knots Landing and uh, Falcon Crest. Anyone remember those? Good, wholesome shows like Magnum P.I. And... Who knew that Magnum P.I. wore Daisy Dukes before Daisy Duke did? You know, that's, uh, that, go back, you'll see. Uh, and of course, then the Dukes of Hazzard themselves back when uh, all of a sudden there was a switch and Bo and Luke became coy and somebody else. Do you remember that? I remember it rocked me a little bit. I was like, what's going on? Who are these frauds, you know? General Lee was the same, so uh, not much else mattered. But uh, good shows like the Smurfs and... Uh, So I I think about the countless images. There's no telling the number of images my eyes have seen, but I think about some of them that had the most profound impact. I can remember when the Challenger shuttle exploded, and I can remember seeing that image on TV, and I can remember even as a young child, my first thought was thinking about that teacher's classroom that had been watching, and they were so hopeful, and her school was so excited, and then just as a young child, I can remember thinking about the brevity of life and how uh, all of a sudden they were gone. They were gone. I can remember when the Berlin Wall came down. And it was so uh, interesting to me because we lived in Leesville. Of course, Fort Polk was there. And so many of my friends had spent some time in Germany with the military there. And, and of course, that's where uh, they would transfer. Some would come into Leesville. And so just faults on that. But to... to Obviously one that's captured very well, Ronald Reagan's Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. But to see them climbing over and to see the pieces, I, I remember that. Th- there's another image that happened a little later, but one that had a profound impact and one that has some local implications. I'll never forget Swaggart crying on TV and confessing what he had done. And I can remember even uh, uh, for the age that I was being impacted by how one person's disobedience can have such a profound impact on so many others. And I can remember just the grieving of, man, I hate that that happened. And uh, obviously via television, what he has done, forever there are flashbacks. You see flashbacks all the time of that image with, with him crying. But very few of us have had our sins publicly displayed as... He has. And uh, the truth is, all of us good. All of our sins are just as wretched, but very few of them have been that public or that broadcast. Obviously, it was a not-so-shining moment for him. And uh, as I think about the passage that we'll study today in Matthew 26, I think about public betrayal, and I think about public shame, and and I think about a not-so-shining moment, and I love that the Bible records not-so-shining moments of others, and none of mine are recorded here, you know? I'm thankful that you don't get to study those directly, and so I'm sure that you might be thankful that we don't study yours, but we do have plenty to see, and the disciples themselves often provide many not-so-shining moments. We shared a few weeks ago when James and John wanted to call down thunder and lightning from heaven and destroy a village because they dissed Jesus, you know? (laughs) not-so-shining moment with regard to compassion. We think about their fight over who's the greatest, as we talked about last week. In the meantime, Jesus takes off his outer garment and washes their feet. We can think about the time when the disciples were telling the little kids, Get out of here, kid! You're not welcome. And Jesus is like, What's wrong with you, not heads? Let the kids come. And uh, obviously they meant well. But the passage we'll study today in Matthew 26, I would say by far, is their darkest moment. It is by far their least shining moment, and it is recorded for all of us to see and to learn from, and it is betrayal. And it's going to be betrayal. Obviously, Judas is most famous, but every one of his disciples will betray Jesus on this night. They will all abandon him. They will all flee, and they will leave their teacher completely alone. Now, I would like to point out one thing at this point in redemptive history. The Spirit is not in these disciples in this way. The Spirit obviously comes and indwells them at Pentecost. And so uh, I think sometimes we see this and we're like, how could they fall away? I'm not sure that I wouldn't have done anything different. But even more so now, we who have the Lord's Spirit in us, I think the betrayal is even greater when we do not stand for Christ, when we hide, when we turn, when we (laughs) care more for our life than we do His honor. We care more for what our peers think than we do his regard. When I think about betrayal, uh, I had uh, one one time I can remember sharing with a youth minister something that was um, I was very shocked by. Of course, uh, it's funny. Uh, the, some of the girls in our youth group, I rode with them around Leesville, and they were cussing. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems, you know, this is where I, I learned all of that from my dad. So it wasn't the first time I heard. I, I My first cuss word was when I was four and mom jerked the car over. We were coming back from Texas. And she's like, where'd you learn that? I was like, dad, you know, and so I got spanked anyway. Most of the time, you know, the Bible says that in Proverbs, it says you spank the fool out of the child. Most times she said, I'm spanking your dad out of you, you know, and so that was our journey. But... uh I'd been around it, but these were girls in the youth group, and I looked up to them, and I can remember, you can tell my little legalistic heart growing up, you know, my little goody heart, and uh, anyways, I was so shocked, and I told our youth minister, and I'll never forget the day we got on the bus to go to camp, because guess who cornered me? Those three girls, and they lit me up, and I can remember wanting to vomit on the bus headed to camp. I can remember wanting to get off, and I'm man enough to re- admit two things. I do wear pink, and yes, I cried that day. And uh, I understand a little bit why Elijah ran from Jezebel, you know. Uh, uh, and they they attacked me, you know. And uh, uh, I think what struck me most as a child going through divorce and having confided in a man who I loved and appreciated and who still do, that youth minister ended up being the best man at my wedding. I remember being crushed that he had told them what I'd done and felt in many ways betrayed. And I don't know about you, some of you have probably been betrayed and you feel it in some of the deepest ways. And when that happens, there's an incredible crushing. And I don't have the words to really accurately communicate this passage to us. So I'm begging for the Spirit to to do his work because Jesus is unbelievably betrayed. This is the most difficult night and he wants his friends to watch with him. And though he alone can face what's coming, I don't think he wanted to face it alone. But they fail him. And yet in here are some of the most glorious words of restoration. I don't know about you But I have betrayed Jesus this week. I have failed Jesus this week. And the most glorious aspect of this is Jesus has not cast me off. Peter is going to blatantly deny Jesus. And yet Jesus will restore Peter and build his church on him. This is a great gospel. And Jesus is a merciful Savior. I want you to stand with me and let's begin reading in verse 30 of Matthew 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch for me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Father, we thank you for preserving this text. We thank you that we will be able to see the failure of the disciples. Father, we are disciples today who know our failure very well. And thank you that even in this is a word of restoration. Thank you that Jesus says, I will go before you into Galilee. Father, thank you that he is going to Be faithful to them, though all will be unfaithful to him. Thank you that when they all abandon him, he does not abandon them. Would you give us a word? And some of us are holding grudges. Some of us are holding bitter spirits. How can mercy not flow out of us when we encounter such a passage? When we encounter the gospel. Father, may our breath be taken away today that Jesus will drink the full cup of your wrath because of our sin. May we stagger as he drinks this cup of staggering. Father, would you teach us and feed us and use your word in the lives of your people. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Dr. Argel Smith once preached a sermon in chapel at New Orleans and he just kept repeating the refrain, Christ Jesus alone. Christ Jesus alone, Christ Jesus alone, and he would uh, use it throughout. And as I considered this passage, there's no doubt it's Christ Jesus alone. Uh, The three passages that we'll study, these three paragraphs here in Scripture, Christ alone knows what is coming. He knows. It's obvious Jesus knows what's coming. He tries to tell them. Christ alone understands what's coming. That's what's going on in the garden. Jesus knows it's more than just a cross, friends. Jesus knows it's more than just mockery trials. Jesus knows it's the full brunt of God's wrath. It is not just sin in itself. It is taking on sin, becoming that very sin, and experiencing the full brunt of forsakenness, which will be the worst part of hell. Jesus will experience hell in just a few hours. And he understands what's coming. But then as he rises and gets up and he tells them, ready or not, boys, it's coming. And by then he would have seen them coming down with their torches and lanterns from outside the city up to the Mount of Olives. That's why he says, see, they're coming. Jesus alone embraces what's coming. Peter's going to try to chop off a guy's ear. I've never been so grateful that Peter wasn't successful in leading a revolt than I am in this passage. Because we would all perish in our sin. If if Peter had won and led a revolt and Jesus not go to the cross, friends, we would all perish in our sin. So the one who embraces what's coming is Jesus. He knows. So what an incredible passage. As we open, Christ alone knows what's coming. Two simple things from verses 31 to 35. Jesus clearly knows everything that's going to happen. Peter clearly knows nothing. All right? I'm so grateful. How many of you are grateful for Peter in the Bible? I'm so grateful for his example. I'm so grateful for his foot and his mouth. I'm so grateful for his impulsiveness. I'm so grateful that on some days he gets it right, and then right after that he botches it all. You know, and there's a lot of botching going on in this passage. And so I'm so grateful for Peter. And I don't mean to make fun of him. I'm really thankful for the example. But Peter clearly knows nothing. Jesus clearly knows what's coming. I've tried to communicate to you the cross is not an accident. Jesus is not in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus is in the right place at the right time and on purpose. He's already communicated them through the scripture that he would be sacrificed. We saw that in verses 1 and 2. And that made the fourth time that he told them what was coming. So crucifixion wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like Jesus was like, what's this? I didn't see this coming. Jesus was like, this is coming. This is the plan. And of course, they struggled because they wanted a Messiah who liberated them from Rome. They needed a Messiah who liberated them from sin. And that's what Christ came to do the first time. The next time he comes, friends... He will be a reigning king. He is a reigning king. And all will know, and you need to worry, Need worry. there will be no other kings to worry about. He will reign supreme, and it will be what they thought the Messiah would always be. But in the plan of redemption, this is the process. The Messiah has to die. He's the only one who can set his people free in this way. So he tried to tell them. Jesus knew that what Mary did with the perfume would be told generation after generation after generation after generation. Jesus knew that one of his disciples would betray him. I guess he's lucky because he knew it would be Judas. He got it right. He had a one in 12 chance of that, right? He knew one would betray him. He knew it would be Judas. There was no doubt. And he tells Judas that. He lets Judas know, I know what you're doing, buddy. And I'm not going to stop you. I don't want to stop you. It's part of the plan. He knows it's all part of the plan. What Jesus now tells them is this, in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. And Jesus knows this is going to happen because he tells you how in the next phrase, for it is written. I love how Jesus knows the scripture. Now, we would say he had a hand in writing it, but I love that here... And Matthew is intentional to let you know all this isn't crazy. It's all because of a plan. It's written, Zechariah says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So before it happens, and Jesus is telling them, I want you to know before it happens because you'll know that I was telling you the truth. He says, you're going to all fall away from me. But he does say something else. He says in 32, but after I'm raised, guess what? Jesus knew the resurrection was coming too. That wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like the father said, hey, I need to send you back. Jesus was like, what? I didn't get this memo. He told him. He said, I'm going to be raised. What I love is the density of the disciples who don't get it. And the ones that are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're like, it's three days now. And we'd hoped he would come back, but nothing. And he's walking right by him. I love it, you know? And so Jesus knows the resurrection. But here's the best part. He says, you're going to fall away. But he says, I'm going to be raised up, comma, I will go before you to Galilee. And what he's telling them is, I will lead you again. I will lead you. And if you go over to Matthew 28, you're going to see, in fact, when the women come to the tomb, the angel says, tell them to meet them in Galilee. In Galilee, that's where he said he was going to be going. Go to Galilee. And it is a word of restoration. Even here, he said, you're going to fail me, but I'm going to restore you. This is a great word, friends. This is a word of great hope. You're going to mess up. You're going to leave me, but I will not leave you. And then, of course, Peter's going to say, though they all fall away. We'll come to Peter in just a moment. But here's what Jesus knows. Jesus also knows Peter will deny him. He knows Peter will deny him three times. And he knows Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows. Either Jesus is really lucky with all this stuff, or he knew what was coming. How many of you think Jesus knew what was coming? See, friends, this is what we've got to know. The gospel was planned. This was not accident. This was the divine redemptive plan. The cross is no accident. Every facet, Judas, all of them falling away, every bit of it was planned. What an incredible plan. Jesus clearly knows everything. Peter, though, let's look now, clearly knows nothing. Peter, first of all, what I want to point out to you, so when Jesus says... Truly, I tell you this very night, before the cruisters, <laughs> cruisters for the cruisters, row, row, cruister, row, before the roosters crow, you will deny me three times. And as amazing as there's so many phrases that are amazing to me, verse 35 has one of the most amazing ones. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then it says this, Peter said to him, is this not amazing? Peter is going to correct Jesus. And this gives me hope for a lot of you because Jesus walked with Peter for three years and he still didn't get it. And that's why I have a lot of hope with a lot of you who look at me sometimes and you're like, but pastor... You know, okay, thank you. thank you for 35, and you do the same with me. I'll reply it to you, gracious to me. That way I don't get fired. So Peter said to him, this is amazing. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He corrects Jesus. I once, in one of our PhD seminars, had a, uh, our professor let this guy present his paper. And then our professor gave him the out to say this. Is there anything you would change about this paper and I'm thinking at that moment, if a professor ever gives you that opportunity, seize it. Be like, well, there were lots of things I was considering changing. Were there specific ones you would recommend, you know? <laughs> That's not what this guy did. This guy said, no, I feel it's a pretty strong paper. I wouldn't change anything. And so the professor then says, well, let's start with the title page. And so he starts, and he rips him on the title page. And then he moves, and he moves for about four or five pages. And we're all just sitting there, you know, like, And then the professor takes his paper and throws it over his head, and he said, that's what anyone else would do if they read this junk. And it made an impact on me a little bit (laughs) of need to write well, write well, write well. And if he says, would you change things? Yes, change everything, whatever it was, whatever I need. Yes, this guy didn't do that. And this is what I think about Peter. Jesus is like, Peter, you're going to mess up. Peter's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Thank you, Lord, for Peter. Thank you for his example. First of all, Peter clearly knows nothing. Don't correct Jesus. Jesus knows us, friends, better than we know us. Jesus knows us better than we know us. We know us. And he knows Peter needs help. He knows that Satan has asked to sift Peter. And Jesus says, but I'm praying for you. The problem is Peter wasn't praying. Peter wasn't praying. So he corrects Jesus. Number two with Peter, he thinks he's better than all the other disciples. Don't you love what Peter says in 33? Though they all fall away because of you, and it's not like they're far away. They're all still together at this point so he's looking at the other ten because Judas is gone. So he's looking at the other ten and he says, though all these busters fall away, I'm with you, Jesus. I wonder how the other ten felt about that, you know? Most of them were probably like, well, whatever, Peter. We know how you are, brother. You know, they probably knew it was coming and so they just sat silent. Or they were used to it, you know? But here's the problem. He is thinking he's better than the others and this standard here left to right rather than Christ. We're always going to get in trouble with that and um, our superiority may not be perhaps what we think it is. Then the last one, is going to rely on himself. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But then what's interesting, it says all the disciples said the same. That's why the last verse we read over in verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. I have a little arrow in my Bible where I've traced them together to connect them because all the disciples say, I'll never leave. And then the last word is, they all left and they all fled. Friends, if you want to betray Jesus, then you should think like Peter. You should uh, and think as he does and become confident in yourself. We should flee to Christ because apart from him, we can do nothing. I think that so often in our own sanctification we are too confident in ourselves, and we do not pray enough. And I would tell you that this passage right here, 31 through 35, is full of good intentions. But good intentions are not the same as spiritual strength. I'm sure they wanted to do good. But you need Jesus to do good. You need the Spirit to empower you. And the way that you get this, you ask. Our best intentions cannot protect us in the time of severest testing unless we've learned how to seek God in prayer. And you know what I think about? I think that we have a slumbering church with a capital C, not just Crosspoint. But how many times does Peter and Paul and Jesus say, be awake, be alert, be sober-minded, and then we walk through the day sleepy. We walk through the day as if it's going to be okay, while the world, the flesh, and the devil rage against you. Peter says they will wage war, and they don't take a day off. There is no ceasefire. So when will we be the ones who heed the warning of Jesus? As Jesus says, Peter, pray, pray. If Jesus tells us to be alert, church, let's be alert. Let's rely on Jesus. Christ alone knew what was coming. The second passage that we see here, Christ alone understands what's coming. He alone prays earnestly and sweats profusely. In verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So they come down from the holy city. They go up to the Mount of Olives. And then on part of the west side of this, there's this little garden. And it may have been walled in. It was common, obviously, not a lot of space in the city. So there would be gardens out to the side. And perhaps this is a a friend's garden that they were used to coming. Judas knows where to go. Judas knows where to find them. And so perhaps it may have been walled, and and Jesus is asking for some time to pray, and they've kind of come away from the crowds. They would have come through them still bustling around in the city trying to find places to celebrate the Passover. I've told you they would cross the Kidron Valley where the blood from the sacrifices of that day would have already been running through that ravine. There was a drain from the temple that drained right into it. They go up, and and he just says, look, you guys stay here. Watch, Watch with me. And then he takes Peter, James, and John, his three innermost and takes them a little further, and then he's very honest, and I'm so grateful. It says he begins to be sorrowful and troubled, and he says this to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And I can't even fully grasp the emotional scene that Jesus is overwhelmed, that he's saying, at this point, I could die of sorrow. At this point, it is so thick. I could die of sorrow. And Mark and Luke are going to record, Jesus keeps throwing himself on the ground And he keeps praying, and he'll get up, and he'll throw himself down. And this isn't a small time. This is apparently an hour because he comes back, and he says, Peter, could you not keep watch with me an hour? Jesus has been throwing himself on the ground praying, and it is this intense emotion, and he's overwhelmed to the point that his body begins to react, and sweat drops of blood begin to drop on the ground. And the anguish is on his face, and he's relaying this to them, and they're snoozing, and they're snoozing. Why is he praying so earnestly and sweating so profusely? It's because he alone will drink the cup. Here's why he's sorrowful. It says in 39, Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup Pass for me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What is it about this cup? Friends, Jesus isn't afraid of the cross. I don't believe Jesus is afraid of the scourging by the Roman officials. I don't think Jesus is afraid of being spit on. I don't think Jesus is afraid of the whole crowd uh, calling for Barabbas and rejecting him. I don't think Jesus is afraid of anything, actually. I do think that he understands what the cup is about. Jesus knows the Old Testament better than we know the Old Testament. And as you see this cup in the Old Testament, it is always associated with God's Wrath. In Isaiah fifty one seventeen, it shows us this cup in God's extended hand is the cup of his wrath. And for those who drink it, it's called the cup of staggering. This cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin. And we discover in Scripture that it's intended for all of sinful humanity to drink. It's our cup. It's the cup that you and I should drink. Jesus is taking our place. In the vivid imagery of the Old Testament, this cup is filled with fire and sulfur and a scorching wind like some volcanic firestorm, like all the fury of Mount St. Helens' eruption, concentrated within one coffee mug. No wonder Scripture says that tasting from this cup causes the drinker to stagger and be crazed. No wonder that when Jesus stares into the detestable vessel, he stumbles to the ground. That's why there's shuddering terror and deep distress for him at this moment. In the crucible of human weakness, he's brought face-to-face with the abhorrent reality of bearing our iniquity and becoming the object of God's full and furious wrath. And friends, this was the plan from eternity past. They knew it was going to happen before they said, let there be light. They knew this price would have to be paid. And in that cup is going to be the forsakenness, which is why Jesus will cry out, Why have you forsaken me? It is the cut-offness. It is the full experience of God's covenant curses and none of the blessings. And Jesus is going to drink it all. He's going to atone for whatever you did this week, whatever I did last week, And whatever we're going to do next week. And he's going to have it all laid upon him. And remember, he has known no sin. He has been perfectly obedient. And now he gets the punishment. It's sort of, we mentioned lawyers earlier. And sort of if the lawyer, instead of his client being the one who takes the place, it is the lawyer who's on the stand. And it is the lawyer who experiences the capital punishment. And it is the client who goes free. Friends, we are the guilty ones. And we are free because Jesus is taking this cup. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to experience God's wrath for my sin. Friends, if Jesus is shuddering this much, no one should run head on into hell. If Jesus is shuddering this much, hear the word that is spoken about hell. It's not the fire. It's God's full wrath for all their sin. And how many in this city today will die without Christ? How many in Uganda? How many in Boston? How many in countries where Jesus is yet to even be named? And all they can expect is this cup. We should not remain silent. We should be overwhelmed that Jesus is taking our place, and we should be extremely burdened for those that are not in Christ. Here's the thing He alone prays earnestly and sweats profusely, He alone drinks the cup, He alone seeks the Father's will over His own. Each time He says, If this is possible, great, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want your will to be done. And 42 is what he says. Your will be done. John 6:38. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 12 that Kevin read earlier, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then in John 17, as he's doing this high priestly prayer that we call it, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It is incredible that Jesus had nothing on his mind but the will of the Father. What's on your mind? What's on your mind as you go from this place this afternoon? You got your checklist of what you need to do, get done? What's on your list for this upcoming week? Is it the will of the Father above all else? Is it that you search scripture and you know what God wants? God's will is not hidden, friends. He wants sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4. He wants you to make disciples, Matthew 28. I don't have to pray. We know so much of what God wants. Is this our heartbeat? Is this what we long for when we wake up or we consume to say, I want to do what you want me to do today? And Jesus is clearly saying that. And he says, look, if it could be another way, fine, but your will over mine. I want to say something very important to you about God's will. God's will may lead you through difficult pain. Jesus is not in the wrong place. He's in the right place. And it's going to be incredible pain. But no matter what the pain, we obey the mission of God because he's given it to us and he will give us all we need to make it through. So sometimes when life gets rough, we think, well, maybe I'm not in the right spot. Friends, you might be right in the center of God's will. The way you know that is you seek him every day. And just because pain comes doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. For all those preachers who will say, knowing Jesus means no more pain, I would submit to you, they may not know this Jesus. This Jesus went right through the heart of pain, the most wretched part. And sometimes God's will for us means that. And you know what? God owes us no explanation. But he gives all we need. He gives all we need. And in heaven, all will be revealed. And so that's what we hold on to. But I would submit one last aspect from this. We should be very bold in our prayers. I think Jesus from here, why does prayer matter? Why does prayer matter? I've tried to show you that I believe the means are just as ordained as the end. I think if someone comes to Christ, who shares with them is just as ordained. The means are just as ordained. And prayer is a part of that. Jesus teaches us to pray. And so in God's redemptive plan, our prayers are a part of those. We see that as the Israelites pray in Exodus, and God responds. I don't believe God was just like, okay, because he tells us in Genesis he's going to do it, and he tells us when. The prayer is a part of that process, and Jesus is praying. But here's where I want to encourage you with boldness. Jesus knows it can't be any other way. Jesus is known from all eternity. He is the way. Jesus knows there is no other substitute. There's no other way for God to be just and the justifier if Jesus doesn't bear our sin. There is no animal that can be used because no animal can do what only Jesus' blood can do for us. So there is no other substitute that can now be here, but Jesus is still boldly just saying, if it can be another way, if this cup can pass, but not what I want, but you will. And I think there's incredible boldness. And I think sometimes we are too afraid in prayer. Jesus knows it can't, but he's not afraid to ask. But even in the asking, he's saying, but whatever you want, I'm going to do. And Jesus is the plan. There is no other plan. If Jesus doesn't go through with this, we all perish. We all drink the cup. We're all forsaken. Christ alone understands what's coming. Here's the last part. Christ alone embraces what's coming. We're going to see that Judas is evil, Peter's ignorant, and Jesus is awesome. In this passage, while he was still speaking, Judas came. And see, that's that's the part I love this. At the end, you know, in 45, Jesus says, Sleep and take your rest later on. These guys have been sleeping. He's come back, and I don't know what they had. Maybe it was a bunch of honey buns, and they're snoozing. I, I don't know. I think their Lord's Supper was far different, obviously, than ours. Of course, they're celebrating the Passover, so it wasn't just a little wafer, I was going to say. I don't get very dozy after our wafers, but here, they're slumbering. And, of course, it's in the early hours of the night. The rooster crowing would do so between 3 and 6 anyway. And so for Peter to deny him, these are in the wee hours of the night. Most likely midnight is about the time that he hit the garden. So he's praying. And I love that he says, look, you boys are going to have to take your rest later on. Here they come, ready or not. There was only one that was ready, and it was Jesus Is because he'd gone to his father. And he says, rise, let us go. I love that Jesus walks toward them. I love that Jesus doesn't scramble. I love that he doesn't run away. Post-garden, he never wavers in any way. He's fully in. He's fully submitted to what the father wants. And he's walking. While he's still speaking, Judas comes up with the crowd. And we know this. We've heard this story. This is Judas being the betrayer, and he's going to kiss him. And it makes it even more treacherous. And what we should know is there are obviously some people who didn't recognize Jesus. For Judas to have to kiss him, there were some in the crowd who didn't know anything about Jesus. But he's going to do this sign and this sign is one of incredible love and yet it's extreme betrayal. And so when Judas does what he does and Jesus then responds, friend, do what you came for. Uh, We know from scripture, from Luke, he says that Satan has entered Judas at this point and Judas is clearly evil. To sell Jesus out is evil. Yet, it was all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan, friends. Judas... He's evil at this point. Peter, he's still ignorant. Matthew is gracious. He doesn't want to sell Peter out, so he doesn't tell you who it is. But Mark, who was good friends with Peter, he does. And it's probably because Peter wanted, Peter would want you to know, look, I was ignorant, but now I get it. And so what happens is as they come to Jesus with these swords, and it could have been as many as 600 people. This is no small band. It could have been as many as 600 people. They come to Jesus. And so when, when they tried to grab him, it says, they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. In verse 50, behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Who knew Peter had a little sword? You know, I, thought, I mean, fish must have been tough in those days. You know what? Fish, you rise up out that water again. I'm going to cut your head off. You know, I mean, well, then, who knew? Peter's rocking the sword, all right? He's obviously not a good aim because surely he might have been striking the head and either Malchus moved at the last minute or whatever, but Peter only got one ear, all right? He got the right ear. Here's the incredible awesomeness of Jesus. He's going to put that ear back on of one of the guys who's taking him away. Is this not mercy embodiment? This is so incredible. Peter, on the other hand, he's trying to lead a revolt And what I said, if Peter had rescued Jesus, we would all perish in our sin. We must not fight the kingdom's battles in our ways, friends. We must not fight the kingdom's battles in our ways. Peter always gets in trouble when he exerts his thoughts on it rather than following what God's thoughts are. Peter tries to lead a revolt. Fortunately, he wasn't successful. And so you see the awesomeness of Jesus. He mercifully restores an ear. He resolutely embraces the divine plan. So he says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. That would have been enough for them and him. That would have been 6,000 apiece between the 11 disciples that remained and Jesus. That would be sufficient. (laughs) I only got one. We got 6,000, right? He said this could happen. He says, but here's the deal, verse 34. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Friends, this is no accident. This is an incredible plan of love. He says, how's it going to be fulfilled if we avoid this, Peter? And then he chastises them because he says, how come you boys came out here in the middle of the night? Why didn't you grab me when we were at the temple? Why didn't you do it in broad daylight when everyone's around? Why now? Why out here? And so he chastises them a little bit. But even in this, he says... But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus is awesome because he restore, mercifully restores an ear. He resolutely embraces the divine plan. And then that very painful last verse, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus courageously stands alone. He courageously stands alone. For disciples to abandon their teacher in this way was a betrayal that would have deeply shamed the teacher. Though all his disciples failed him, Jesus did not fail them. Though they all abandoned him, he did not abandon them. Here's what I love, friends. Jesus came to save losers. Jesus came to save the weak. Jesus came to save the fearful. But here's what I want to remind you of in case it happens. If on one day Christ Jesus asks you to stand alone because no one else is standing with you, Christ Jesus has been there before, friend, and he will empower you. If it is only you, students, then stand. Stand. Christ Jesus has been there before. Let me close with one last Christ alone. Christ alone restores Peter. Peter is going to do what Jesus said he was going to do, and we see that in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. It's not that he's cussing at this point what he's saying is if i'm lying take my mother if i'm lying he's invoking some form of a curse in this way he's trying to emphasize it and when that happens he says i do not know the man and says immediately the rooster crowed but but what i uh, am always stunned by it says in luke 22 luke records and says when peter says this the rooster crows and it says this the lord turned and looked at peter now friends can you just imagine this moment You're the guy who said, even if they all leave you, Jesus, even if all these busters leave you, which they did, I won't. And even if they all deny you, even if I have to give my life, I will. But isn't it interesting Peter here is more concerned about his life than Christ's honor. And I just can't imagine that moment because Jesus is being interrogated. But when the rooster crows, he just turns and he looks at Peter. Peter. And Peter goes out and he weeps. And this is the proper response when we betray Jesus. And I fear many of us take our sins so lightly. It's so trivial because we're on this side of the cross and it doesn't grieve us or break our heart. Friends, Peter is broken hearted and he weeps bitterly. Peter's going to do what Jesus said he was going to do. But here's the most amazing thing to me. Jesus is going to do what he said he was going to do. Way back, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus just made a simple statement to Peter. He says, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. I got to tell you, in Matthew 26, it looks bad because Peter has denied him. And the question is, how is this going to be possible? And it's because of mercy. One person has given an illustration to say, It's as though you and a friend were walking down a road together speaking of your friendship and two thugs attack you and grab your friend and you just run away to save your skin. And the next day you see your friend coming toward you on the road with stitches and bruises on his face and before you can say anything, he hugs you and says, oh, it is so good to see you, friend. I'm so glad you're okay. I have... No words to communicate the full sense of this betrayal. And yet, Peter is going to be reinstated. John is going to capture it. And after Jesus is resurrected, he has a moment with Peter on the side of the shore and he just says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. And feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. I tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. Why do you think Jesus asked Peter that three times? I think he knew Peter needed to know he was fully forgiven. I think he wanted Peter to fully embrace it and get it and restore it. Is this not an incredible word of hope, friends? You know, the Bible opens with betrayal. Adam and Eve have the sweetest of all lives, and they betray God. And the way that betrayal is made up for is this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, if you are a disciple who lets Jesus down, you're in good company. We all do. But we need to be remorseful. And we should be growing in sanctification so that we are choosing sin less and less and Christ more and more. But hear the word of hope. On the worst night of betrayal and abandonment, Jesus did not cast them away. I love the song, How Firm a Foundation. The last line says this, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Though you may forsake him at some time or another, he will never forsake you. Now, friends, this mercy is also a word of indictment on us when this type of forgiveness doesn't flow freely from us. It is an indictment to have received such a merciful Savior and for that not to be evident in our lives. How do you forgive the worst of betrayals? You embrace the gospel. So just a couple questions. Stephanie will come. We'll have just a moment to respond, and then we're going to close out. Just a few questions. Do we need a fresh experience of his mercy because we may have betrayed him this week? Do we need Christ to empower us to follow the Father's will as he did because it's not necessarily most important? Do we need Christ to work in us so that we hunger to do what God wants as much as he did? Do we need to forgive someone? Do we need to, in the blood of Jesus and what he has accomplished, freely forgive? I had to do it with an abusive father, friend. What about you? Do we need to stand speechless in light of Christ's substitution? You and I should have drunk from this cup. But because he did, we never will. How does love grow cold when you think on that? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for him drinking the cup. We thank you that he died condemned in our place, in our most wretched sins, every one of them. The times that we have betrayed you and the times we've betrayed ones we've loved. All of that is atoned and paid for. The chains are gone. We have sung that. We are free. Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. Father, thank you for recording the failures of the disciples. Because we think about them and we're going to see post-Pentecost, these are incredible men. And these are incredible men who are going to die for the cause of Christ. Christ. They're not going to flee again. They're going to be beaten and put in prison. And as soon as they're let out, they go back and keep preaching. Peter is going to be crucified upside down. He was not the same. And it was because of your great mercy. Oh, Father, how could we ever be the same after experiencing your great mercy? Father, please let us be the church and be different. Some in this room may need to let go, need to offer forgiveness, empower that, Father. Use your word in our lives. Please help us not to be self-reliant when we walk out of this room in a few moments. Please drive into us that apart from Christ, we will fail too. And we will fail in everything. But with Christ, we can be faithful. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you.